morning. Scripture reading is from Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21, on page 820 in your pew Bible. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is God's word. Well, some of, you, uh, some of you know one of my favorite things to do uh, with my son Joshua is to read great books with him, classics uh, of literature, uh, like Narnia, The Hobbit, and Lord of the Rings, which have a way of making their uh, way into my sermons on occasion. Uh, the challenge of reading great stories, though, of reading the classics, is that because they are classics, we can become kind of numb to the story. We become kind of uh, unimpressed due to our familiarity uh, with what we're reading. We know where it's going, and so we kind of lose the suspense of it. We're no longer caught up in the story like we were the first time that we read it. Uh, For instance, we just finished uh, reading The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. And in terms of American literature, I mean, that's about as classic as you can get. Uh, It's Americana right there, a story that uh, so many of us have grown up hearing about and knowing. Even if we haven't ever read the book, we kind of, we know who Tom Sawyer is, most of us, probably at least if you're 10 years older uh, or older. Uh, but it was fascinating to, to not just uh, assume that I knew where the story was going, but to slow down and actually read it and to read it with Joshua and his fresh eyes and find myself getting caught up in that familiar story once again. The story before us in Matthew's gospel this morning is perhaps the most famous and familiar miracle story in Jesus's life and ministry. It's the only miracle story that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the stuff of flannel graphs and, you know, paintings in the nursery. And and it provides us with one of our most common metaphors when we pray to God from a posture of need. Lord, will you take these five loaves and these two fish and multiply them and, and provide? This story is vintage Jesus. This is classic Jesus. And of course, it may not be familiar to everybody here, and that's okay. Uh, But if you've grown up in the church, there's a pretty good chance that when we hit a story like this, there's a temptation to just kind of go into mental cruise control and and just kind of check out, because I've been there, heard that, uh, what else is new. My prayer for us this morning is that we would hear this story again for the first time. 
that we would let ourselves get caught up in the suspense of it again and see with fresh eyes the portrait of Jesus that is before us. The portrait of a perfect shepherd king who is nothing less than God in the flesh. So let's pray together as we look at this story. Gracious Father, we do thank you for the chance to open your word and hear your voice. What an incredible gift that is, Lord. And we pray that as we open your word this morning, we would see you more clearly. Lord, help us, wake us up from the familiarity of stories we've grown up with. Uh, give us fresh eyes to see them. Most importantly, Lord, give us fresh eyes to see you as you're revealing yourself. And may your spirit be at work in our hearts to change us, even as we see you in this story. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our story here begins with Jesus seeking solitude. Uh, It begins by showing us that on the one hand, though we don't often think of it this way, on the one hand, Jesus was a man like all men. He got hungry and he ate. He got tired and he slept. He felt pain physically and emotionally. He cried at times. He grieved. And sometimes he needed to be alone. He needed to be away from everyone else and just spend time with his heavenly father. And that's what he seeks in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Of course, because of what happens in this story, uh, That's something he doesn't actually get to do till the beginning of the next story. He doesn't find the solitude he's looking for until verses 22 and 23. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Now, there's a reason that Jesus wants to be alone here. Uh, And we're told in verse 13, it's because he heard something when Jesus heard this. So so what did he hear? We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew together. And the story we looked at last week uh, in chapter 14, 1 through 12, we read the story of Herod Antipas. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Antipas, Antipas, something like that. Antipas, Uh, his murder. We read the story of Herod and his murder of John the Baptist. And his alarm at hearing of Jesus's miracles, thinking that John had somehow come back from the dead to get him or something like that. Herod was was quite concerned. So it could be that what Jesus has just heard was the death of his friend, his colleague, his cousin, his forebearer in ministry, uh, John the Baptist. A death that signaled that his own death was now no longer that far off. And so for all those reasons, Jesus could have wanted to to do what anyone would want to do then, to just be alone, to think and pray, to, to take counsel from and to take comfort in his Father in heaven. But the account of John's murder in verses 3 through 12 was actually kind of a flashback, something that had happened before this point. And so I think it's probably more likely that the report Jesus has just heard that makes him want to go and find some time alone is the report of Herod's suspicion and offense toward him 
in verses 1 through 2 of 14. He catches wind that Herod's interested uh, and wants to see him. Again, Herod's confused. He he thinks that John is is somehow out to get him. And Herod takes offense at Christ. But that, you know, catching wind of Herod's interest, in a sense, sends the same signal as John's death, reminding Jesus that the cross is no longer that far off. Sometimes we forget how Jesus lived his whole life, as has been put, in the shadow of the cross. He knew where this story was going the whole time. You think of the weight of the cross in his mind when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, it was probably not the first time that Jesus wrestled in prayer with his father about what they decided before the beginning of time that they would do. And yet, Jesus knows that his hour has not yet come. The cross is getting closer, but the time is not here. And so he leaves Herod's territory when he when he hears that he's now a threat, and he crosses the sea to find solitude elsewhere. Not because he's afraid of Herod, but because his hour had not yet come. But when he arrives, he finds anything but solitude. The rest of verse 13 tells us, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And the other gospel accounts tell us they actually beat him there. So despite Jesus' desire to be alone, he was a man in demand. People wanted to see him. Everyone, everywhere he went, people wanted something from him. They brought their sick to him to be healed. They, They sat at his feet to hear him teach. Now, in Matthew, he doesn't elaborate on uh, why the people were seeking him here. Uh, If we look at this story in the Gospel of John, we we see a little bit more detail. Some of them, John tells us, were following Jesus because they were looking for political freedom from Rome. Uh, John 6, 15 says that after the meal, uh, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountains by himself. So the people wanted a king who would stand up to Herod, who would stand up to Rome, who was controlling Herod, a people who would break their political chains and set the captives free. This is, after all, much of what God had promised in the Old Testament prophets, that that God would raise up a new king and that they would be free from the oppression of foreign nations. And so the way they assumed God was going to do that was through a violent rebellion. And they were looking for a king to lead the way. So basically, they wanted another Herod, just one who was on their side and stronger than that Herod. That's what they were looking for. And to some, that's no doubt what this party in the wilderness looked like. A rallying point. The word translated desolate place here is the same word as wilderness elsewhere. It's the place where leaders who posed a threat to the political powers that were in control, it's the place where they would flee for their lives. People like David when he fled from Saul seeking his life. David went to the wilderness. Or Elijah fleeing from Ahab went to the wilderness. John the Baptist living out his days as a public enemy of Herod in the wilderness. It's also the place where rebellions were Uh, forged, where political rebellions were staged, such as the Maccabean revolt that had happened just about 200 years before Jesus. So a large crowd like this following a self-proclaimed king into the wilderness 
certainly roused the excitement of those who were seeking political freedom. But Jesus disappointed them because that's not the kind of king that he is. Now, others came out to see Jesus, according to John, not so much because of the political freedom, but for physical provision. They wanted to benefit from this miracle working guy. They wanted in. So Jesus says to them in John 6:26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So these people were just interested in their stomachs. And here's a free lunch. And yet there were some who sought Jesus, not because of what they thought they could get from him, but because of who Jesus was, because of who Jesus was. When others abandoned him, they didn't. And so the 12 disciples say, Peter says in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So not everybody was looking just to gain from Jesus. Some were following him because of who he really was. But Matthew, in his story, doesn't focus on the crowd's reaction to Jesus. Instead, Matthew puts the spotlight on Jesus' reaction to the crowds. He's just showing up, looking for solitude, and now he's interrupted and he loses his chance. Which is an experience in some ways uh, that all of us have had in some form or fashion. I mean, you're, you're just sitting down in the booth at Panera with your coffee and your book and you know you have 37 minutes until you have to be back to work. And you've been looking forward to this break and all of a sudden a couple of friends come up and start talking. And you know you love seeing them, but this is not what you were planning to do. You needed those 37 minutes of quiet and solace and so on. And, um, probably the most crushing experience for my wife uh, uh, throughout the week is sitting down in the afternoon the kitchen's clean, the kids are sleeping, the little ones who aren't at school. And, and you sit down and you open that Bible and then you can hear Chloe crying down the hall. And it's like, no, you know, we love we love Chloe. That's great. But just you know, five minutes with the Lord, just five. That would have been nice. You know, so, so we've all you, know, you take that experience and then you multiply it by the anxiety and weight of the cross. And the need to be with the heavenly father. And so you wonder, how's Jesus going to respond when he pulls up the shore and sees this crowd? We see his response in verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus doesn't get upset. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't mutter to himself under his breath and kind of fake a smile. He responds with compassion. As tired and troubled as he is, he continues to do what he came to do, to love his lost sheep. Verse 14 reminds us of Jesus' reaction to the crowds back in chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And in fact, in, in Mark's version of this story, he includes that same description of what the crowds were like. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, which is a really vivid picture if you think about it. Sheep are not known 
for being the smartest barnyard animals. And, and what happens to them when you're in the wilderness and there's no shepherd? I mean, they wander off. They, they stray along. They are vulnerable with no one to protect them from predators, no one to lead them home, no one to provide them with food. That's the picture of Israel. It's also a phrase that's used several times in the Old Testament to describe what happens when God's people lack the right leadership. In Numbers 27, Moses appoints Joshua to take his place when he's gone so that, quote, the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So we've got to have the right leader or else the people will be vulnerable and go astray. When the prophet Micaiah in uh, in 2 Kings 22, when he foretells that King Ahab is going to die in battle, the vision he describes is this. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. As the Lord said, these have no master, let each return to his home in peace. So their king was about to die and leave them leaderless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So so it's a, it's a common metaphor in the Old Testament for what happens to God's people when the leader fails or is gone. And what Moses sought to avoid and what Micaiah said would happen is what the people of Israel were experiencing prior to Jesus showing up. Despite whatever ill motives they might have had, they were a lost and helpless bunch. Their lives were marked by brokenness, by sin, a sin which separates them from God, and they lacked the godly leadership that was needed to seek them out and rescue them. No one was looking for the lost sheep. No one was protecting them or trying to provide for them. Herod's only concern was to silence his critics and get his way. Rome was not much better. They had no interest in helping the people of God walk with God. The Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious leaders that we've met in this book, uh, they too were, were more interested in power and control than faithfulness to God. And so God has an indictment against Israel's shepherds back in Ezekiel 34, and it pretty much applies to all of the leaders over Israel in Jesus' day. Ezekiel 34 verse 2 says this, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel, you who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. This is the picture of God's people, Israel. They were harassed and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And so, despite Jesus' desire to be alone right now, when he sees the crowd, he has compassion. His heart is moved to pity. 
He does what kings are supposed to do. He shepherds his flock. More specifically, we see he heals them. Verse 14 tells us he heals the sick. That's what the shepherds were supposed to do. And then he feeds them. He feeds them. That's what the shepherds were supposed to do. And that brings us to the main part of this passage, the miracle story of feeding 5,000 plus people. So in verse 15, Jesus' disciples, uh, seeing this crowd, they make a very logical uh, and quite uh, compassionate suggestion. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy for themselves some food. Just a very thoughtful suggestion. I mean, they see thousands of people around them. They recognize there's no 7-Eleven on the corner out in the wilderness uh, near Galilee. And, and so they need to, to get back to the towns before it gets too dark. That's the caring thing to do. Uh, and so we should encourage them to go ahead and, and head in that direction. But then Jesus says something that's probably as shocking, well, maybe not quite as shocking to us uh, as it was to them, but it's still shocking. Verse 16, but Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. What? <laughs> How in the world are the disciples supposed to come up with enough food for a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children? So you could be looking at a crowd of anywhere from 10 to 20,000, depending on how many, how big their families were and such. You know, the disciples do the math. The other two, uh, Mark and John tell us that they figured out it would cost you know about two thirds of a year of a year's wage to buy that much food for this crowd. Uh, they take an inventory. You know, all we've got here is this this five loaves and these two fish. They're kind of confused as to how they're supposed to give them something to eat. In verse 17, they said, "We have only five loaves here and two fish. That's not even enough to feed the twelve disciples, let alone." 5,000 plus people. Then Jesus makes his point in verse 18, where he was going all along. And he said to them, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. Jesus doesn't tell the disciples, you feed them, because he really wants them to figure out a way to do it. He wants them to see they can't do it so that they pay attention to the fact that he can you feed them. How? Bring them to me. Jesus is able to feed the flock. Only Jesus is the perfect shepherd king who's able to feed his flock with heaven's power. He doesn't chastise the disciples for not understanding what he was doing or not having enough faith. He simply says, bring them to me. I am the good shepherd. He is nothing less than God in the flesh. Again, you know, this story on the one hand shows us the humanity of Jesus in the story. But on the other hand, we see that this miracle of feeding this multitude shows us the divinity of Jesus as well. This is nothing less than the hand of God. And this is perhaps the most intriguing connection back to Ezekiel 34. So that chapter where God chastises and indicts the shepherds of Israel for failing He then says he's going to, he responds basically in two ways 
to their failed leadership. First, he says that he himself will shepherd the flock, his own flock. Ezekiel 34, 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, because of your failure as shepherds, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the people's and gather them from the countries, and bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. So God's first solution to the failed leadership of Israel's shepherds is that he himself is going to be their shepherd. But then he says in verse 23 that he's going to set a descendant of David on the throne as a shepherd for God's people. Verse 23, Ezekiel 34. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, keep in mind, David's been dead for nearly 400 years uh, when this prophecy is given. He's talking about a descendant of David who's going to raise up. So God is going to answer Israel's problem by being their shepherd. He's also going to answer their problem by setting a descendant of David up as their shepherd. Jesus is the answer to both of those promises in this passage. He is God himself. He is a descendant of David. According to the flesh, a descendant of David, yet at the same time, the eternal son of God, fully human, Fully God, perfect shepherd king. He's the one who, if we watch the rest of the story here, makes them lie down in green pastures and feeds them. That's what Jesus does here. Matthew 14, verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves He gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. I mean, it's it's hard to picture what this scene would look like. If you imagine the disciples' surprise, they're going around distributing bread, and every time they reach into the basket, it's the last loaf, and they give it out, and then they stick their hand in again, and there's another one or something. Who knows how the Lord did it? But but you've got to be thinking, you know, imagine the wonder in their heart toward their King Jesus as they're watching this miracle unfold and participating in it. Who is this man? Who else cares for his people like this who else has control over the elements of creation such that he can take something that does not exist and then make it exist who else but god 
And not only does Jesus feed his sheep, he feeds them abundantly. He goes over and above what is necessary. All four Gospels record the fact that there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers when they were done. And people have tried to understand, is there some significance in the 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples? Maybe. Uh, We're not sure. But it's amazing to think, you know, to go from such an an inadequate uh, resource pile as five loaves and two fish, and then when they're done distributing and picking up the leftovers, all 12 of the disciples show up with a basket full of leftovers, more than what they started with. That is an incredible thing. Our God does not just give according to need, but he gives far more abundantly. But the point here isn't to draw attention to the disciples and their reaction either. The point is to draw attention to Jesus. Whatever you have, he says, give it to me. He's the one who's able to feed his sheep. He is the perfect shepherd king who is God in the flesh. Who doesn't provide only what is needed but gives over and abundantly. You think of Psalm 23. If the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not be in want. You shall not be in want if the Lord is your shepherd. So how do we see Jesus? Here's the story. Here's the portrait. What do we do with that? How do we see Jesus? Have we become numb to this portrait or to other portraits of him due to our familiarity with them? Have we lost our awe of the incredible Savior and King that we meet in these scriptures? If so, we need to learn how to read these stories again with fresh eyes and let ourselves get caught up in the suspense of them again to see Jesus for who he really is. Do we look at Jesus for what we hope to get out of him? You know, like the crowds looking for a free meal. Come to him and say, you know, I will follow Jesus if. And then there's this blank check. And and we write all sorts of things in that blank check. If he does this for me, if he gets me out of debt, if he finds me a girl, if he gives me a child, if he lands me a job, if he makes my kids look good so that I'll look good, if he helps me advance my cause, whatever that is, and regardless of whether or not it lines up with his cause, I'll follow Jesus if. And if we find that he doesn't offer the thing where we come to him looking for, or that he actually asks of us something, like denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following him, dying to self, that's when we cut bait, which is what most of the people in this crowd did, according to John 6. When when they saw that what Jesus was offering wasn't exactly what they were looking for, They kept looking elsewhere instead of taking what they really needed from him. So do we look at him for what we hope to get out of him? Or do we see in Jesus the one who alone has the words of eternal life? The one who offers not just bread to fill our stomachs, but food that endures to eternal life in John 6.27. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And he's talking about a satisfaction far beyond 
what our stomachs are grumbling over for the Sunday meal that is about to happen in a half hour or whatever. He's talking about a satisfaction that comes from being united with the God of the universe for all eternity, for having all our joy, all our peace, all our satisfaction and happiness met in that union with him, that love relationship with God that can never be broken by sin or by death because Jesus' blood is enough. That's the kind of bread and water he gives to his people. Do we see in Jesus the, the chief and fullest expression of God's shepherding care for his people? How is it that God's going to search out his sheep and seek them out? How will God bring back the strayed of his people and bind up the injured and strengthen the weak? How will he save his people? How will he feed his sheep? He does it by sending his eternal son to take on human flesh and become their shepherd, to stand in their place and give his life as a sacrifice for their sins, for our sins. It's amazing, the picture. The shepherd takes the place of the sheep. The shepherd takes the place of the sheep. I was just reading in Revelation 8 this morning, this picture of this promise of of our hope in the end, the hope of the redeemed, that therefore they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall no longer hunger, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. The lamb is the shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the shepherd care of Jesus? Or you think of Isaiah 53. Surely this suffering servant that Isaiah tells will come. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is the cross. That is what happened at the cross of Christ when he gave his life for us. Do we see in Jesus the love, the forgiveness, the hope, the healing, the life that he has to offer? And do we see it in abundance? Do we see it in abundance? Do we believe that he measured out, He measures out his love for us, not based on what we deserve, but according to the measure of his grace, based on the value of his own blood? That's the measure at which he uh, doles out his love for us. Do we trust him to provide our needs right now. For some of us, that's the hardest part in all this. Yeah, I can get the, I'll trust you for where I end up in eternity type thing. But what about rent, Lord? What about groceries? Uh, what about this, this auto repair bill? Do we trust God to provide for our needs right now? Do we uh, make those needs known to his people that we can love one another 
and help one another out? Do we pray or do we just assume that we've got to fix this ourselves? And where we do continue to have want, do we trust that in the end we will have everything? An incredible verse in Romans 8.32, it says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See, it's an argument from the, the greater to the lesser. If God is so willing to depart what is most precious and valuable to him, his son, how will he not give us everything else that's also less valuable than his son? That's the kind of overabundant love God has for his people. Do we believe that Jesus still loves us abundantly that way? That he still answers prayers miraculously that way? That if we give him what we have as a congregation, Westgate, our, our meager resources, our time, our energy, our ideas, our skills, our money, our plans, that, that he can multiply that and use it to reach hundreds upon hundreds for Christ. Do we believe that? The king that we follow is not some insecure salesman anxiously trying to close a deal on some second-rate product. He is the God of the universe who is worthy of allegiance from everyone, who has all power and authority in heaven to accomplish his good and gracious will. Do we pray to him as though that's who we're talking to? When we pray to God, do we pray as though this is the God, the God that we see in action, multiplying? Do we pray as though that's the God we're actually talking to right now? That, that there is really no limit to what he can do according to his good pleasure. Do we believe that if we have Jesus, we have everything? And so that we're free to serve and follow him without fear of loss, without fear of trial, without even fear of death. That we have, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I've got everything I need if God is my shepherd through Jesus. Jesus is our perfect shepherd king. He is God in the flesh. That's what the story wants us to see. So let's trust and follow him as that good shepherd. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with this truth. Lord, we confess we have a very small view of you. We look at our circumstances and we think that they're too big for you to overcome. We look at our financial problems, our health problems, our, our sin. And we think that there's just no freedom from it. And so we don't ask you to do big things because we don't believe you can do them. God, forgive us for having a small view. Lord, give us faith to pray for your will to be done, however big that will is. Give us faith to trust you that when your answer is no, that you're still good, that you're still working out your plan even if we can't see it. But give us, don't let that be an excuse not to trust you, to do incredible things for your glory. 
So, Lord, would you have your way in each heart here? Would you have your way in this congregation? Would you help us to pray to you, knowing that you are the God of the universe, that all power and authority in heaven belongs to you, and that you are able to accomplish your good pleasure? Would we pray with faith to believe that? Thank you that through Jesus we can pray that and know that it's true. We ask it in his name. Amen.